Hello and welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel. Today I am welcoming to the show Hugh Mackay. Now, the Final Draft Podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. Each week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, Final Draft is all about exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Each of our conversations look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. At 2SER, we broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people. I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, today on the show, I am joined by Hugh Mackay. He is a well-respected social psychologist and author, and his new book is called The Therapist. This is a fantastic look into the therapy room as Hugh's protagonist takes some rather unconventional... uh, approaches and finds they are coming back to bite her. I am a fan of Hugh's writing and this was certainly a very interesting look at a profession that is both so necessary, but I guess until we've, you know, experienced it, perhaps a little bit opaque. Join me today to discover Hugh Mackay's The Therapist. Hugh, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much, Andrew, and lovely to be talking to you again. I, I appreciate your sustained interest in my work over all these years. It's, it's very encouraging. Look, I mean, it's not just me, but the, your, your work is well-loved, and we were talking, talking off-air about the particular power of novels, and I think, the therapist, uh, I think the therapist has something to say to us. I might give the people a little bit of an intro to Martha Elliott. Now, Martha Elliott's approach to psychotherapy is unconventional but her unorthodox methods have not gone unnoticed. And the arrival of a mysterious couple in Martha's office sets in motion a series of events that will cut to the heart of Martha's practice and deep into the raw truths about human nature, forcing Martha to confront her own demons. Who are these people? And what do they know exactly? I actually, I toyed around with this, uh, how I might introduce um, the book, Hugh, because... There is so much to the therapist. I've really sort of emphasised the drama there, perhaps a little bit of the mystery. I want to turn it back to you because there is so much to it. How do you introduce the therapist to people? Uh, I, I mean, I love the way you introduced it because that's gone right to the, the kind of central plot, but there are many subplots. I'd introduce it, I think, by saying Martha Elliott um, is a maverick. Uh, she's a maverick in her personal life and a maverick in her professional life. She would be deregistered as a psychologist if people knew exactly what she gets up to. None of it's damaging. It's all helpful to her clients. But, for example, she combines conventional counselling with deep breathing and guided meditation, and she's recently introduced foot massage for some of her female clients with astonishing therapeutic results. Um, But she knows what the boundaries are, but she's not very interested in the boundaries. Her partner in her professional practice is worried about the fact that she keeps crossing the boundaries, but she says that, in fact, she reminds one of her patients that, that the word psychology comes from the ancient Greek meaning 
the study of souls. And she says, I'm interested in the care of souls. I'm interested in healing troubled souls. I'll do whatever it takes. So she's a very, very unconventional psychologist. Um, I love her. Uh, and so far, I've found a lot of readers who love her because in spite of her maverick tendencies and some pretty murky stuff in her personal history, she does seem to be a really good person. She's utterly devoted to the well-being of her clients. And, and about half the book is spent in her consulting room working through the stories of four of her clients. We tra track them over a few months. Uh, the other half of the book is about Martha and her personal history and her 40-year-old her daughter, Samantha, who doesn't have a partner but is determined to get pregnant. So there's another subplot about about the hunt for a sperm donor and the love life of her professional partner, Rob, uh, who's trapped in a very... I mean, the reader can see that he's in a hopeless situation, but Rob himself can't see that, which is often the case. <laughs> You mentioned so that in a, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, that's, that's what it's about. Yeah. You mentioned there how much of the novel we spend in Martha's, uh, in Martha's office, in her practice. I know you're fascinated by people. I know you're fascinated by the ways that they interact. But what drew you into the therapist's office, these very personal and unique individual experiences? Hmm. It's fascinating, uh, Andrew, uh, for me to try and figure that out because – in a funny kind of way, there's there's almost I'm sounding like Martha now, but there's almost no boundary between my nonfiction and my fiction. Because my nonfiction, I'm trying in a way to hold up a mirror to society and say, this is what's happening to Australia. This is why we feel the way we feel, etc. And I'm sort of doing the same thing in the in the novel, trying to hold up a mirror to us. But but it's like the story of contemporary Australia in miniature. Mm -hmm. through the personal experiences and difficulties of the clients that, that Martha is seeing, I think the trigger probably was a recognition that Australia in 2023 is the product of 30 or 40 years of such dramatic change in the way we live, the choices we make about how we're going to live, that we become a more socially fragmented uh, society, like many other Western societies, been some erosion of social cohesion. People have lost their sense of belonging to local neighbourhoods, uh, not totally, but to a very significant degree. And the result of, because we're herd animals, when the herd fragments, when people feel as if they're a bit cut off from the herd and social isolation and loneliness have become our number one public health issue, um, we have these ep epidemics of loneliness, anxiety and depression, which are the inevitable result of what we've been living through. Uh, therefore, there's been a record demand for psychotherapy. Mm. Uh, one psychotherapist in three in Australia have now closed their books. They just can't, can't deal with the demand and people are leaving the profession because they're experiencing burnout. So I was very conscious of the fact that that that, that demand for clinical psychology, counselling, psychotherapy, the variations on that theme is a, is a vivid, a really potent symbol of what's been going wrong in our society. And so I've been, talk I've been writing about that in the last few non-fiction books. 
But it just suddenly occurred to me that the thing to do is get into mm. a therapist's office and see how this is actually playing out in the lives of individuals. As Martha says to her partner at one, at one point, everyone she sees is to some extent suffering from loneliness, even if they're in a marriage, you know, not, not that they're not that they're necessarily alone, but they're experiencing this sense of loneliness, which, well, as I said a moment ago, I think we now recognize it within psychology. We recognize that loneliness is the number one public health issue in Australia because it's got so many health consequences. It's such a, it's such a risky state for people to be in. It's associated, of course, with anxiety and depression, but it's also associated with hypertension, inflammation, uh, a loss of sleep, vulnerability to addiction. Even recent American research has shown it's associated with reduced life expectancy. So we have to address loneliness. And Martha's very passionate about that in her practice. I want to pick up on this thread because rather wonderfully, you've made several points that I wanted to, uh, I wanted to highlight in my next question. Um, because we do live in this time of, of undeniable trauma, um, through sort of the gradual social fragmentation and then also just undeniably traumatic events over the last three to four years, mm. it's led to this unprecedented demand for psychological services. And, you know, the word unprecedented gets thrown around a lot, but I, I think we can claim sound usage here. Yes. Um, <laughs> even as we clamour for services and the funding to access them, we live with the stigma of mental illness, the stigma of accessing um, so uh, these psychological services. You touch on this in the novel where several of your... I had a moment there. I'm like, am I revealing client confidentiality here? This is... <laughs> they're characters, Andrew. They're characters. Um, you deal with this in the novel where uh, several of your characters are confronting not just um, what is going on in their lives, but how they are to view psychological services, that they are accessing them, that their partner is accessing them. From your perspective, is there a way we can start to unravel ourselves from this these contradictions of need and perhaps let's call it shame around access? Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a lovely question. I think we're making real progress because so many people are now accessing psychological services of various kinds, ranging from a call to lifeline through to years of psychoanalysis. Um, and I think the stigma is going and yet you can see, and people are now talking quite openly about seeing my therapist or I saw my psychologist the other day like I saw my dentist. Well, you wouldn't have heard that even 10 years ago. Mm. People would have been a bit more tentative about mentioning it. Um, there's still a stigma, I think, associated with the term mental illness. Mm. People are quite happy to talk about depression uh, or loneliness or anxiety but it's a step too far to say that these are examples of mental illness. And, and there's a, a case, one of the Ruby, the 35-year-old 30, uh, engineer in the book whose husband is going through psychotherapy, uh, uh, she uh, clearly, at, at one point she referred to his mental illness and he flew off the handle. He didn't want her to be referring to that. But, but by the way, she's a good example of, of the problem. He was embarrassed about the fact that he was seeing a therapy. He didn't tell her for six months. 
And then she was absolutely outraged when she discovered that her husband, once a week, had been seeing a therapist at Wednesday lunchtime and not telling her. And he was still very secretive about the whole process. That that has a, a, a happy resolution, but it's a very painful journey uh, along the way. Um, and uh, a couple of the other new clients that Martha has who feature in the book, Hazel, who's about to turn 80, and Lucas, who's an IT professional young bloke, uh, just turned 30. Um, it's their first experience of psychotherapy, and they're a bit amused about what does this all mean. And as Lucas says at one point, it's very different from visiting the dentist, isn't it? Uh, he's, not, he's not sure how this should be handled. But So we've got really... I think your word unprecedented, which has had unprecedented use ever since the bushfires, the floods and COVID, but it's, it is appropriate here, unprecedented demand for psychotherapy means that more and more people are going to be open about it, but not everyone. I think particularly older people are still a bit reluctant to talk openly about it, a bit reluctant to reveal that they're having this kind of help. Uh, and we need to encourage each other to talk about psychology the way we talk about medicine or dentistry or anything else. I mean, it's another service that's available when we need it. Mm. Um, mm. I think, um, and I think I might pull myself up here because it is perhaps um, it's not it's not correct for me to s simply talk about mental illness without talking about its corollary, mental health, and in the same way. We, we hope we enjoy the bulk of our lives being healthy um, and accept that some portion we may be ill. Um, we all have mental health and we will all experience some degree of mental illness. And that that is something of the normalising effect. Um, we talked at the beginning about just that absolute hook of the thriller. And I want to get into that. You, you lay the groundwork for a thriller in the Orton's first visit to Martha's office. And what follows, though, while no less thrilling, is a really open telling that encompasses both Martha and Abigail Orton's perspectives. I was really curious about why you chose to reveal so much, particularly of your antagonist through the telling. Hmm. Uh, well, my publisher initially said, hey, this is a psychological thriller. And I hadn't thought of it as a psychological thriller, but I suppose it is. Um, but that's consistent um, with Martha. Mm. Um, uh, that she is, you know, wanting to be open uh, with herself, wanting to be honest with herself about what has happened in her past that it turns out Abigail Orton knows about. But but Abigail herself keeps it, plays it pretty close to the chest. She mm. she says to her, she takes her husband to these sessions. They they experiencing couples therapy at least on the surface. Um, but she's got a hidden agenda. But she keeps that agenda pretty well hidden. We don't we don't know until the end what I mean. We we know part of Martha's backstory, but we don't know that that's the story that Abigail knows until uh, towards the end. And and in fact, Abigail says she's a pretty malevolent creature. Uh, she says to her husband at one point quoting Paul Keating, you know, <laughs> and talking about her relationship with Martha, I'm going to do him slowly, as, as Keating said about Houston, and that's Abigail, I'm going to do her slowly, <laughs> talking about Martha. It's a troubling, uh, that that's uh, a unique encounter in Martha's experience. She's never had anything. And, and Martha says of herself that she's got a good lie detector 
um, right from the beginning, she senses that something's not right mm. about the Ortons. She can see that there's a problem in their marriage and they're, they're ill at ease with each other and she's encouraging them to talk about that and so on. But all the time she has this uneasy sense that there's something just going on behind the mask and she's dying to find out what it is. Well, eventually she does find out what it is and it's very shocking for her. Mm. We'll leave that. Um, we'll leave that hanging there yes, for the reader yes. to experience. I am going to pick up the thread though of of the Orton's visits when when Martha meets them for the first time. She's confronted by a verbal tirade from from Abigail on hypocrisy and authenticity, and and Abigail poses a challenge that I, I, I'm actually I'm quite sure many listeners have wondered about. You know, what does a psychologist's life say about them? Do they follow their own advice into some sort of state of social bliss? You know, if you if you can't achieve it for yourself, why should I listen to you? Yes. Is this a fair question, though, to ask? Yeah. Like, is it a fair question to ask of anyone? Or is it perhaps confusing the journey with the destination? Ah, this is a wonderful issue to raise, Andrew. Uh, yes, um, Abigail Orton is completely explicit. She says, you go to a doctor who's obese and he starts trying to give you advice about how to lose weight. You think, ah, hang on, you know, do as I do as I say, not as I do. This is a bit hypocritical. Well, yeah. well we want to feel the same way about a therapist. Mm. It's all very well about your work, but what does your life say about all these things? Do you take your own advice, in effect? I, I think, uh, the, um, I think, I think the comedians would put it as um, you never trust a bald barber. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, well, Martha's response is, my life is irrelevant to this. It's, uh, I'm trained to help you. Uh, I'm like an athletics coach. That doesn't mean I'm a good athlete but I certainly know how to coach athletes. Uh, a, a good coach knows how to And she's saying that of herself. Uh, I think probably as the story unfolds and we realise that Martha has had quite a lot of trauma in her own life and has had to keep some pretty dark secrets to herself, uh, that, that in a way that equips her to be a better therapist. Mm. If you think about, just think you step outside uh, the, the therapist setting and think about each of us in relation to our own families, our own friends, colleagues, neighbours. If you haven't been through some turbulence, if you haven't experienced bereavement or a life-threatening illness or a relationship breakdown or a retrenchment or some other drama, it's much harder for you to relate sympathetically, mm. to offer support to people who are going through that. Uh, it is much easier to be uh, a friend, to be a supporter, to be therapeutic in your relationship uh, with someone who's going through something that you've been through. Uh, and I think that we, we feel that about Martha in the end, that the fact that she has had some pretty challenging experiences in her, her own life makes her a better therapist, not a worse therapist. And when you think about it, would you want to see a therapist who'd had no experience of life in the raw, who'd lived in some kind of ivory tower and studied all the psychology and passed all the exams and knew all the right things to say but couldn't feel it. I think we'd all like to feel that. But, but, but Abigail Orton's point is if your life is a complete shambles, <laughs> then maybe we're not 
too impressed. That's the bald, bald barber syndrome. I know, and I think, and and I can't help but feeling one that at Abigail was well. I mean, Abigail is doing this for a reason. Let's obliquely yes. refer to that. <laughs> but again, there is there is perhaps some false assumptions to what Abigail is saying, some false equivalencies, and and maybe Martha's job is is a little bit more like um, anything from sort of your, your Seven Samurai to um, to Bilbo Baggins in the Hobbit. You know, if you yeah. If you if you want to catch a thief, you need a thief. If you you know if you've got some dirty business, you need to hire someone who's been in the trenches. Yes, yes, exactly, and that's and that's implied really by Martha's life, the relationship between Martha's life and work. Um, and I, I think no none other of her clients raised that issue apart from Abigail. But I think the reader looking in on all this says, yeah, actually. The more we learn about Martha, the more we realise that she's very well equipped to help some of these wounded people deal with their difficulties. Perhaps we also, uh, I, as, as the creator of Martha, I'm very sympathetic to her, and I think the more we learn about her life, the more sympathetic we are to the fact that she does um, break the rules a bit and she does cross the boundaries. We sort of get why that might be. Mm. I want to let's go deeper into Martha's CV though, because while she is a practitioner of the talking cure, and she's considered by her peers to be quite effective, so Rob considers her to be quite effective, if unconventional in her practice, she does have this fraught relationship with, I guess, let's call it open communication. Maybe we'll call it the truth. Yes. Um, again, I'm I'm going to skirt around particulars because these are there to be discovered by the reader. But did you want Martha's story to explore something about that that idea that open communication is is the be all and end all? Because it it feels like there is a real tension in Martha's story about whether being open will heal or perhaps harm. Mm, that's right. And, and, and when you've captured it exactly, there is tension. Uh, she's not sure herself. I mean, obviously, she's encouraging her clients to be completely open with her. She has not been open about various things, even with her own daughter. Mm. Um, uh, so, so she is caught in that situation. And by the way, she recognises in her psychological practice that she's dealing with what people choose to tell her. By the way, this is the social researcher's nightmare also, Andrew. Mm. <laughs> I listen to people and, and they tell me their story and I try to analyse and interpret that and make sense of it, but I'm only going on what they've told me. And there's a point early on where Martha's reflecting on the nature of her work where she says, uh, when a client leaves her room, she often says to the empty space, yes, and what else? Mm. Uh, and she says, I sometimes feel as though I'm being overwhelmed by all the things I don't hear. So she knows that people, even when they really want to tell her the whole story, even when they want to tell her the truth about what they've been going through, they may not understand it fully themselves. They might. She talks at one stage about how clients are, often hidden behind a veil which they don't want to, they don't create consciously, but it's there and it's her job to help them lift the veil and see things as they really are, see themselves as they really are. But that's the, I mean, in a way you put your finger on the heart of the struggle 
um, a, a person comes to a therapist, as Rob, her partner, says at one point, um, there are two people you should never ask about the state of the world, psychotherapists and journalists, because they're all dealing with bad news. Mm. They're all dealing with exceptions. People only come to a therapist because they're in trouble, not just because they're what he describes as psychotourists who just want to have a nice little chat about the meaning of life or something. People don't come here to tell you how wonderful their relationships are uh, or how their kids are a source of unalloyed pleasure. They're here because they're in trouble. Um, so <clears throat> Martha knows that they've come because they're in trouble and she recognises that they won't always themselves be able to identify the source of the trouble. Sometimes they will. I mean, Hazel, the, the almost 80-year-old, uh, finally, uh, after a foot massage and some gentle time with Martha, is able to reveal some pretty dark material from her own early life. Um, that she's never revealed to anyone uh, but, but Martha. So here she is, almost 80, finally coming to terms with truth about herself. It, it is a struggle for all of us, in a way, to be honest about who we are and about the influence of positive and negative experiences in the past. Um, Martha is an example of the kind of, therap the kind of therapist whose main Stocking trade is listening. She, she says, if you, it's, it's rather the, the sort of Carl Rogers school of psychotherapy, uh, empathic listening. As long as you listen empathically, Martha's view, people given an opportunity to reflect, not, not, not just to talk, but to reflect and to experience the meditation and all those other things that Martha does, uh, they can usually work it out for themselves. Mm but they need a safe, secure, supportive, empathic, patient yeah. environment to do it. She, she refers in the past to a client that we don't meet in the book who on one occasion just came and sat for 50 minutes in Martha's office and didn't really want to say anything. She just wanted to be there in a, in a safe space to think quietly. Um, so, yeah, so Martha's, Martha's approach to this issue is – we're all caught in the tension between wanting to present. And, of course, Abigail makes this point when she's defending her own appalling behaviour uh, to her husband, Bill. She says, everyone's acting. All the world's, in quote Shakespeare, all the world's a stage, men and women merely players. We have our exits and entrances, etc. And she says, you know, what about politics? It runs on spin. What about the cosmetics industry? It's all about... Um, making yourself look better than you are. What about Instagram, Photoshop, pictures, all that stuff? Um, so Martha understands that, that generally speaking, um, we, we operate behind a mask and it's her role to encourage. But, but she's very unpushy about it. I mean, she, she says at one point when Lucas, the IT man, uh, is on the brink of discussing something really, really deeply personal to him and that's really wounded him. And she says, Lucas, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to tell me anything that you're uncomfortable telling me. So she's not prodding and probing. She's creating the space where gradually people feel that they can safely come to terms with who they are. Mm. You can only open the door. People have to have to choose to walk through it. Exactly. It, it yeah. strikes me also, Martha, sorry, not Martha, Abigail. Abigail would... Um, 
Well, I, she may be on social media. I don't know. She's a character, Andrew. She's a character. Um, she would be brilliant on, on social media in the way that um, no one is brilliant on social media. We all can be versions of our most awful self. She, she, deals, very, uh, she deals very well in that sort of false sense of, of black and white and pithy one-liners and even just this idea that we're all, we're all wearing a mask all the time. Well, you know, if we're all wearing a mask all the time, who's to say the mask isn't an aspect of our true self? But of course, Abigail, she, she's interested. She has an agenda, uh, again, that we're not going to reveal. <laughs> mm. No, that's right. I think the word that captures Martha, very, which in fact Bill says about her towards about, the end of it, she's, she's. About Abigail? About, about Abigail, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, yes, that she's self righteous. Mm. Uh, and self righteousness is a very unattractive human quality because uh, she just thinks she, she's always right. She's right about Bill, and there are real problems and stresses in their marriage. And she's right about Martha. She harbors all these dark thoughts about Martha. In, in her world, it is black and white. She's she's always right, uh, and other people who don't agree with her, or she can see through them, and they're they're the bad guys. Um, but she she stands invincible in her own mind. Uh, well, there's a lot of that around. Mm. And I, th- I hope when readers encounter Abigail in the book, um, they'll say, actually, that, that sort of priggish self-righteousness is a very unattractive, mm-hmm. it's the opposite of humility. You know, Simone Weil described uh, humility as the queen of virtues, uh, which I, an opinion I share. Abigail has no humility. Martha, by contrast, does. She has a lot of humility. She's not... Uh, she doesn't aggrandize her own situation. She, I mean, at one point, Abigail says, oh, you know, you God therapists, you're just like God doctors. Well, Martha com- completely rejects that. She, she's the opposite of a God therapist. Mm. Uh, to her, the, the, it, it's all about the patient, not about her. Mm. I want to... So, yeah. Sorry. I want to explore, yeah. I want to explore in a minute how that how that plays out. I think quite extraordinarily at, at the end of the novel. But before we get there, there's still so much so much fertile ground. One of one of Martha's more unconventional practices is the way that she allows, even invites her clients into her world. Um, through and the the example in the novel is she she likes to hold sort of afternoon teas for select clients. Mm. Through the set of relationships in the novel that you explore, a set of four new clients that Martha has taken on, we we find ourselves moving into something of a, a found families type situation. Yes, it was so interesting to me. It's especially in literature. I mean, it's not it's not unheard of outside of, but it's very much a feature of uh, young adult novels. Um, the the found families. It's very much a feature of I think people trying to explore aspects of the fragmented world that we we were talking about earlier. I'm curious what you were exploring here. Mm, exactly that concept, um, because Martha is recognizing that those clients are all aching with a version of loneliness. Uh, in the case of Hazel, the, the almost 80-year-old, when Martha gives her a foot massage, uh, Hazel almost weeps with relief and makes the point that it's years since anyone touched her. Mm. Uh, and I mentioned that to an audience in Sydney when I was talking about the book last week, 
And there was a kind of, there were a number of elderly women in the audience and there was a sort of murmur that went, a sort of a sympathetic murmur in response to that. Uh, I mentioned that, that point about Hazel. Made me realise there are a lot of people, particularly elderly people who are living alone, who are never touched. And that's, uh, that's a tragedy for them. But it's not just touch, it's the sense of being socially isolated, even if you're in a, like Ruby, the young engineer, feels socially isolated from her own husband because she knows whatever else is good about their relationship, there's this big thing at the centre. He's seeing a therapist every week and I don't know why and I don't know what they say and I don't even know what it's about. You won't tell me. So Martha thinks, well, I, I want to get these people together just to interact with each other. I'm going to explain to them that, we're, that, that clinical issues are off the agenda. We're not allowed to talk about anything that we talk about in the consulting room. But Martha, and she's done this on a number of previous occasions, Rob, her partner, strenuously disapproves of this. And, of course, it is absolutely outside the rules of the profession. You're not supposed to socialise with clients. In fact, I was speaking to someone uh, about the book recently and they said they, they'd been seeing a therapist and they met the therapist accidentally at a party and the therapist headed quickly for the other side of the room and wouldn't, wouldn't engage because uh, it was breaking the rules. But Martha says, no, I'd like to give these people an opportunity to interact with each other socially no matter if it's just superficial, but also she said, I will understand them better when I see them from a different point of view, when I see them socially interacting with each other and with me. Mm. Um, so she's had experience of that um, before the events in the book. But the, but the event in the book, the afternoon tea that happens in the book, turns out to be a pivotal um, plot point, really. I mean, for, as, a, as a result of that interaction, lots of things change in the lives of those people. Um, and that's all Martha's interested in. She says that now we've, we've, we've actually had, it, through that little social encounter, we've actually added a dimension to the therapeutic experience. Strongly disapproved, disapproved of by the profession, completely outside the rules, but Typical of Martha, she's saying it was harmless and it turned out to be positive uh, and I'm not interested in that particular rule. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to get letters, Hugh, when people accessing psychological services start suggesting to their therapist, hey, maybe we could all have an afternoon tea. They're like, where did you get that idea? <laughs> Dear Mr. Mackay, I appreciate that you are a... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Perhaps someone will say, I wonder, I wonder if we could end our session with a little foot massage. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also, I'm, I'm building through, I'm very interested in the ideas that you explore. I'm conscious that um, we may be giving short shrift to some of the characters. They are wonderful and they are there to be discovered. But I, I also am really interested in the progress of relationships through the novel. I'm avoiding specific characters um, by design because, of course, talking too specifically will, will reveal too much. Um I did feel, though, that through several of the relationships, both um, relationships that are reminisced on past relationships and relationships that develop, you were ruminating on the possibility or perhaps the juxtaposition of, of so-called, call it chemistry, and the value or perhaps the necessity of doing the work in a relationship that somehow things won't just come naturally. Um, 
were you hoping to reach a conclusion here, something satisfactory around that, or was it you cleverly actually making sure that the readers did the work about how they feel about this progress? Yes, it's very much the latter. Um, this is a book in which I, I hope readers will get involved with all these characters and, as you say, do the, do some work. Mm. I mean, I do a lot of work. <laughs> Martha does a lot of work. But, but there is plenty of work for the reader to do. Um, and, and that's that's a very it's a very astute observation you're making. I mean, we're looking at these characters over a period of about six months. Um, now, six months is not ten years, but six months, a lot changes in the lives of all of them, and the most profound changes are to do with the evolution of relationships, positively and negatively. Uh, sometimes with a lot of effort. Uh, that is unrewarded, sometimes with a lot of effort that is rewarded, but also um, through that afternoon tea experience, one of the things that jolts uh, several of the characters is that they rethink their own situation in the light of other people's situations that they now know about Mm. through their exchanges at that afternoon tea. Um, But the novel, I mean, if you had said to me, what is the novel about? Uh, I would say it's about relationships. That, that's that's what it's all about, really. I mean, it's also about truth-telling. Uh, it's also about guilt and shame and love and lust and, and about forgiveness. I mean, a, a, an underlying theme of the book is about uh, uh, the power of the healing power of forgiveness. But, but all of those things only exist but for relationships. Yes, 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 exactly. Mm. Um, uh, so, so that's... You know, it's not it's not really a book about psychotherapy it's a book about human relationships and frailties and progress in the context of uh, a woman who happens to be a therapist and what's wonderful as we explore ideas around chemistry ideas around doing the work in a relationship that you show us examples of how it works but also people being sanguine about it not working the idea that I mean, quite often we can, you know, you don't have to walk very far to engage with uh, stories about the development of a relationship, the beginning, the blossoming, you know, the um, unfairly she is characterised as this, but Jane Austen's it always ends in a wedding type of situation. (laughs) But um, you also give us the opportunity to see how an ending might work. Mm. Hmm. Yes, uh, and I'm. I'm. Uh, whenever I'm writing, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, I'm always most perplexed about the ending hmm. uh, of the of the book. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the ending of this book was rewritten um, several times. I, I once read a uh, a novelist saying that he thought every story should end with the word "and," uh, and I'm very attracted to that. I actually tried it on the publisher. I said, how about we just end with the word and dot, dot, dot. No, that was that was a step too far <laughs> for the publisher. Um, and, uh, I mean, this, this, this does come, some, some aspects of the story are resolved and positively resolved. I mean, there, there, is, a, there is a happy ending aspect mm. to one of the, one of the plots of the book, but some are unresolved. Some, some are left a bit ambiguous, as is the case in, in our lives and the lives of people we know. Mm. Um, for things to feel like a happy ending for a complete resolution, resolution is a bit unrealistic. 
So we edge towards that. Even the even the so-called happy ending involving one of the plots is laden with all uh, sorts of risky stuff mm. built into it. But at least at that moment, it looks pretty cheerful and and positive for the for the participants. Yeah. But some of the others, I mean, everyone's making progress. Everyone's getting deeper into their understanding of what's going on. But in not every case does it mean that the relationship they're in is going to be repaired or blossom. In fact, in one case, it looks as though it's it's sort of degenerated into we'll we'll somehow rub along together, yeah. uh, which is not terribly exciting. And I never, I never got a sense that the therapist was promising sort of a ride off into the sunset. I was intrigued by the way you show us, and I, I wondered perhaps if you know we we could even encapsulate this as a goal of therapy that you. You're not supposed to walk away feeling necessarily vindicated or right. You're, you were right and someone else was wrong. And you play this out in the ending where, um, yeah, let's just, be, let's just be vague and obtuse here, where two characters whom seemingly would be in that at loggerheads weren't needing to be right or wrong, both walk away from the same situation feeling like they were on top of it. That was that was quite a, an interesting denouement. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Um, that, that is, I think, how it often is. Mm. Um, uh, it depends how you deal with it. Um, and, and from the reader's point, point of view, we can observe that that is the case and we would probably be tempted to take sides and say, well, in one case, uh, that feeling is more justified than in the other case. Uh, It depends what your motivation is. I mean, people who are driven by revenge, Mm. which is a very destructive emotion and self-destructive and generally destructive, can feel if they've performed their act of revenge, they can feel as though that's good, that I've won, that's, that's my goal was achieved. People who are motivated by kindness, uh, who are motivated by a desire to build social harmony and to forgive, uh, will feel when something awful has been done to them and they've forgiven the perpetrator, that that, that that's, that's they wouldn't say a win, but that's a positive resolution. So you can imagine a situation in which two people are in some kind of relationship or have some sort of connection. Uh, one motivated by revenge, one motivated by kindness and forgiveness and tolerance and acceptance and so on, they can both come out of it feeling as though they had won or, mm. or, or that, that it had been resolved in their favour. Mm. But we look at it from outside, it's much more complicated than that. It struck me, though, as a really nice way for us all to rub along together because it's, I mean, it's an absolute fantasy to suggest that we'll all you know, ever wake up and all be facing the same direction, so to speak, morally, yes, philosophically, yes. Um, yes. that we can take something away. Um, and perhaps even if that just involves us ignoring certain things that uh, are perhaps a little unnecessary. Yes. Uh, and in fact, Rob, uh, Martha's partner at one point, they, every Friday night after they've seen their last client for the week, they have a, a drink and a bit of a debrief. Rob refers to it as the life and times hour, uh, one of their life and times hours. Um, he he makes this point that that when people go through a process with us and move on, it's not that we've 
we've somehow helped them to become superhumans and everything's going to be blissful from here on and all their problems have been solved. We're, we're helping them th through a period of turbulence or difficulty or doubt or whatever it might be so that they can cope, so that they can get on, you know, cope reasonably well. That's, that's the highest aspiration Rob has for his clients, mm. uh, not be miserable. Um, uh, and that's, I think there's a lot, of, lot in that. Mm. That, that, that when when things are going okay, when relationships no no relationship is one hundred percent bliss, but when relationships are working out reasonably harmoniously, when we're part of a neighbourhood that seems to be functioning, when our work gives us some satisfaction, all that, when we have something to look forward to, that's that's about as good as it gets. And Rob is very realistic mm. about that. The idea that you would go through a therapeutic experience and be somehow almost elevated into a different kind of being, now equipped to live in a brighter, better world. That's, that's not, not, not realistic. In fact, Martha's, uh, Martha's aspiration for herself as her epitaph is simply that people would say she heard us. Uh, she just wants people to feel that they have been accepted and understood uh, and that that will be therapeutic for them. It won't transform their lives, but it'll equip them to deal with their lives, um, perhaps more constructively, get more satisfaction yeah. out, of the, out of the same life they were already leading. It's a wonderful opportunity to look more into this idea of mental health, but also into this process of therapy and just really with a cracker sort of thriller lying underneath for the reader to, to sort of push forward, always, always to the end of the book. I'm talking about The Therapist. It is Humakai's latest novel. Hugh, it's been so, so wonderful to have the time to talk about this. And thank you for being so generous with your time today. Not at all. I really appreciate your interest and it's, it's lovely. I, I love the way you talk about these characters as though they're real and we should not betray their confidences. Uh, <laughs> that's music to my ears, Andrew. That is all I have got for you from Hugh Mackay today. Hugh's new book is called The Therapist, and uh, look, I thoroughly recommend it. Thank you for joining me. Great conversations from Final Draft are recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. But can I ask... Would you give us a rating? Are you enjoying the show? Would you like to help other people discover it? Would you just like to make me feel a little bit warm and fuzzy next time I open up my podcast app? Click a like, click a star rating. Heck, write to me. Tell me what you think wherever you are listening to this podcast. I promise it will make me feel good. Uh, now, I am Andrew Popel. I'm going to say goodbye. I'm going to be back. There are so many more books I want to share with you. But till then, happy reading. Bye for now. <laughs>